0: Ida B. Wells, an educator suffragist, once explained that quote, "There must always be a remedy for wrong and injustice if we only know how to find it." But what if the sheer act of pausing and asking questions is a way to find it? How do we know? In pausing, we might better understand what our children are dealing with to help us think about how can we support them today. We'll try to better appreciate issues that might seem timeless, like segregated communities or even testing in schools, issues that play out in very different ways in urban and rural America. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is our Children Can't Wait, a podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing. Our Children Can't Wait is also a book from Teachers College Press and a new podcast from the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA. Our Children Can't Wait is now available online at Teachers College Press and Amazon. I have two distinguished guests with me today, Dr. Sonia Douglas, professor at Teachers College Columbia University, and Anna Kushner. Anna is a scholar and researcher at Teachers College. So if you both could actually take a minute and introduce yourself, let's start with Dr. Douglas.
1: Sure, Um, and hello, Joe. Thanks so much for having um, us on the podcast today. My name is Sonia Douglas. I'm a professor of education leadership and director of the Black Education Research Center at Teachers College, Columbia University, where my research is focused on the politics of race, uh, leadership,
2: and leadership in education. It's great to be here.
0: Thank you, Sonia. Anna, tell us about yourself.
2: Hi, y'all, my name is Anna Kushner. And I'm a doctoral student in the education policy program at Teachers College at Columbia University. And I'm also a research assistant at the Black Education Research Center at TC with Dr. Douglas. It's great to be here.
0: Absolutely. And you're both contributing authors to the book and we're gonna get into some of the themes of your chapter today and even probably expand a little bit more. Let's actually start with you. So Sonia, how did your upbringing shape your current interests as a scholar and educator?
1: Hmm, How much time do I have? Um, I would definitely start with my parents. I think they had a tremendous impact on my interest and commitment to education. It's something that they valued tremendously, particularly as individuals who didn't get a chance to go to college. And so, you know, my father is a veteran of the Air Force. He went into the military directly after high school. He actually was involved in integrating his high school. It's in Soldan High School in St. Louis. And so I think even learning about his experiences after I became interested in research were really instrumental in uh, my research interests and what I've done to date. Uh, My mother is an immigrant from Korea um, who also had very strongly articulated commitments to education. And I think for them, you know, pouring into me and my sister was really important, and they really did see education as the pathway to do that. And I think, again, my racial identity and experiences also informed my interest in understanding how race complicates questions of, of opportunity and diversity and, and justice in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so I experienced some of that as a student, even one who did very well academically, but just kind of seeing how opportunities were given and distributed differently based on one's racial background. And so I still grapple with those questions today. I'm excited about the book project that we're talking about uh, today, um, which I think takes up a lot of these questions. And that's just a little bit about who I am and, and how it's shaped the work that I do.
0: Sonia, where's most of your childhood spent?
1: Las Vegas, Nevada. So I'm a proud product of the Clark County School District, which is the fifth largest school district in the country. And I know we don't necessarily associate Las Vegas with K-12 education, but a huge district um, serving a growing and demographically diverse community. And I think one that's important to watch as we think about the changes that are happening in the country, but that's my hometown. My parents still live in the same house that I grew up in, and I'm still Mm -hmm. very much, you know, committed to and concerned with the opportunities that are being provided to students in Clark County today.
0: Sonia, thank you for sharing that. I did not know that that's why we asked this question, (laughs) because we often don't have a chance to actually get to hear our, our story and our origins and our upbringing. Anna, let me ask you the same question.
2: Absolutely. So I grew up in rural Virginia, and my parents are like wonderful people who always wanted me to like thrive and succeed in school, but didn't get much formal schooling themselves. My dad finished high school. I think he's really cagey about it, actually. And my mother got an associate's degree in nursing. But despite them not having, like, positive experiences in their own educational lives, like, they always really pushed me. But I'm from the middle of nowhere where there, like, weren't advanced classes. And I'm also, like, online learning wasn't a thing yet when I was in high school. So Mm. I remember taking correspondence classes in high school where somebody would live stream a class like somewhere across the state and the librarian would record the Latin class or the AP environmental science class or whatever I was taking on a VHS tape and tape mm-hmm. it every single day for me. And then I would sit in the library by myself and that's how I took probably half my classes in high school. Oh, wow. So that's that's my education context. And then, you know, as I like grew up and left and just came to bigger and bigger places all the way to New York Mm -hmm. City, I realized how different that experience was. Mm -hmm. And as I came up through, like, my time as I was a middle school teacher for a while in rural South Texas before Mm -hmm. moving to New York and working in central office. So, like, as I've had this, like, long career in education and experienced all these different places, I'm realizing just, like, how different the education context is from folks sitting in the library in rural Virginia. So... Mm -hmm.
0: In what part of South Texas did you teach?
2: I taught in the Rio Grande Valley.
0: Okay, Rio Grande Valley. Somehow we've, we've had a lot of Texans or folks who've taught in Texas who were authors who've been on the podcast. It's kind of funny.
2: Spending time in schools in Texas will get you really invested in researching and trying to address inequality. That's for sure.
0: What is different today about our education system compared you know, to the time of your childhood? But what, what feels the same to you? You know, thinking about your own experiences?
1: It was so long ago, Joe.
0: Um, <laughs> no way. Um,
1: I run the risk, yeah, of romanticizing things. You know, I have to say testing, I would imagine has transformed things tremendously. I, I just don't remember testing being hmm. a thing. I, I remember teachers saying, oh, we have a test, you know, tomorrow, go to bed early, eat a snack, you know, eat something the morning of the test, but that hmm. you'll be fine because we've covered it in class. Hmm. so I always kind of think about that and the anxiety. You know, I have three children, two are now out of school. One is the youngest is a sophomore in high school. But just hmm. the anxiety, you know, around test taking and and what that means. And I think the other thing, which is really horrible, but it's still a reality that we don't talk about enough is the the violence, the mass shootings, right? And I went to Colorado State University, my roommate was actually from Littleton, Colorado. And I just think about, you know, even Columbine and how that transformed The experience of school children across the country so just major and then you know you add the pandemic you add the insurrection you add a host of things that kids are experiencing now and i just i don't recall those types of things happening on the scale that they're happening you know when i was in school
0: so it sounds like the the intensity and the, the mindset as a student just the stakes are are higher
1: Yeah, it's really, I mean, I think it's very difficult to grow up now. And I didn't even mention social media, you know, which Mm. exacerbates in a lot of ways some of the the other examples that I raised. So I just think that children have to carry a lot right now. You know, we all do, but typically they're making decisions they shouldn't have to make, I think, Mm. and experiencing things that, you know, you wouldn't want anyone to have to experience, I think, um, as you're still kind of forming your identity and development. So I just think that there's a big responsibility for us, especially in the education space, to just recognize that. Uh, We're all in it. And so I think to a large extent, many of us are desensitized to the shootings, to the political violence, to, you know, the really um, violent debates in many ways, even just the way that we communicate and talk with each other, you know, Mm -hmm. it takes on a whole different tone. And so I think it's, it's it's an opportunity for us to kind of pause and just, have an appreciation for what our children are are dealing with, and then thinking about how we equip ourselves to support them, you know, and to be an example to them
0: so let's let's put a pin in that. Let's come back to it, Sonia. And Anna, you you kind of gave us the the origins of distance learning with the VHS right for your your experience <laughs> growing up. but what what's changed? What hasn't from your perspective?
2: Yeah. it feels like so much has changed. I experienced, like, K-12 before and after No Child Left Behind. So I, like, came up through the, like, increased stakes of high-stakes testing. And so to just, like, watch that get, like, ever more important, going from uh, similar to what you were saying, Sonia, where you're just, like, told the night before to eat breakfast tomorrow, you'll be fine, to, like, high school where there was studying, to when I was a middle school teacher where we would have weeks and weeks of preparation. Just this this difference in the stakes that we're telling young people are being put on them has just changed so much, as well as, like, the ability to, like, filter out information and prioritize. Like, when I think about virtual learning and, like, the differences I experienced when I was, like, taking my Latin class at 8 a.m. in the library by myself versus, like, what young people were going through during virtual learning, where everything was going off at the same time and all of these different devices and so mm-hmm. many people, like, on top of each other. Like, just the the way that we have to divide and focus our attention has changed so much, while at the same time, like, the ability to, like, focus and pick out on, like, minute little things is becoming so much more important. And it's just in such tension you can't fix what you don't know. But more so than just identifying these, like, so-called, so often called achievement gaps or or inequalities, having the opportunity to sit down with young people and community members to see, like, and understand local visions of, like, what it would mean to have equitable schools is the first step, not, not measuring something. And so my biggest takeaway that I would love folks to walk away with is like knowing that these two processes both have to happen. And there's just so much more than understanding the landscape. It's it's like Dr. Douglas was saying, rolling up your sleeves and and digging into some enriching and future building work at the same time.
0: In other words, you can think you understand why systems are not serving kids well or serving them well, by looking at lots of data. But valuing the complexity of individual lives, stories and experiences, and relationships with schools can not only be enlightening, but it's also necessary to develop solutions and policies that really will mean something. That's data too. Proof points to make sense of patterns we might see on a large scale or small scale. Coming up, we're going to discuss this further. Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote, and I made this podcast to have a conversation with you, precisely you, so we can keep the conversation going and hear what you think about the ideas brought up by the podcast. You can actually email me at joe at ourchildrencantwait.com. I'd love to hear from you. Our Children Can't Wait is a production sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA, and the book is published by Teachers College Press. Funding for this podcast comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Sometimes things don't go as anticipated, or the results of a groundbreaking court decision don't create the immediate change that we'd hoped for. Look no further than the Brown versus Board decision, which we've discussed at length in several episodes already as a case in point. Communities of color hoped their children would attend better resourced and integrated schools, but they didn't experience a radical change overnight. In fact, in some instances, things actually took a step back before they got better. We'll bring Sonia and Anna back in a second, but here's what you need to know about them. Sonia Douglas and I met in Washington, D.C. over a decade ago when President Obama was in office, and back then, testing was driving everything people kept telling me that we had to meet and they were right. Sonia is a really deep thinker and can see details that get overlooked by other folks. She asked the hard questions and she didn't buy into a lot of the simplistic thinking about school reform at the time. We both shared major concerns about how an obsession with testing would affect young people, especially youth of color. Anna Kushner works as Sonia's research assistant at Teachers College. And that might sound like a pretty straightforward professor and graduate student situation, but they really complement one another. And as I learn in this podcast, Anna has a rich story to share that informs her work. So, Sonia and Anna, you dig into a little bit of of our, our civil rights history. And we've been talking about this in previous podcasts, actually. We talked about the Brown decision for listeners and what it meant for education, even more broadly for our society Sonia, from your perspective, what were the unintended impacts of the Brown decision for Black families and communities that history doesn't talk about or that we just don't even understand or hasn't entered the the policy space yet?
1: Yeah, I mean, I want to start off by saying that Brown was certainly an important, significant and and necessary decision in so many ways. And that it, although it focuses on schools and education, it was really about dismantling Jim Crow segregation, right? And so ending separate but equal as a uh, policy in the United States. And so that's incre- incredibly important <laughs> that we're now not going to use race to determine where people can go to school, you know, where they can eat and where they can live. But I think the implications for education policy, the outcomes were maybe mixed in that, yes, there was the demotion, right, and firing of black teachers. And so in many cases, and uh, Professor Linda C. Tillman has written about this, you had, after desegregation, the principals and leaders of all black schools who are now becoming classroom teachers in the integrated spaces, right? where they're, they're hmm. now not no longer administrators, but maybe working as classroom teachers if they were able to land a position at all. Hmm. And so I think it's important to think about those direct linkages between some of the policy challenges that we face now, whether it's the black teacher pipeline, you know, issues of representation in the teacher hmm. workforce and how they really link back to You know, maybe not necessarily the Brown decision, but the ways in which desegregation was implemented post-Brown, which, again, that didn't really happen on the ground until the 70s. So I think it's not only some of the the negative and unintended slash intended consequences of Brown, but also a lot of the resistance, um, the preemptive measures that were taking leading up to Brown that are important for us to remember, to know that, you know, a lot of these civil rights struggles and battles it is important to, i think paint a larger picture of how people choose to mobilize and organize you know around a case like brown that it happened really in local communities right it's a series of five cases we talk about Topeka Kansas but it's a collection of cases across the country and then also accepting the fact that there was significant resistance to this and the fact that it had to become a court case i think suggests that there was there still was and continues to be a lot of division when it comes to issues of race and who should be able to attend school and where. Um, So I just think there's so many more lessons that we can learn from it that link directly to the current policy problems that we're still trying to fix today.
0: And if you think about examples of how it's playing out today, what comes to mind, Sonia, when you think about the Brown decision even today?
1: I mean, you know, I've been the one to kind of say it hasn't happened in the way that we, I think many had hoped I think the implications are that it's time that we really just get down to what we really want our schools to be, Hmm. what we believe that the purpose and value of education is, and what that looks like for young people and people who are going to be productive contributors to a democracy in particular. I mean, we talk about creating individuals who are productive members of society, but I think it's important to prepare people to be a part of the democratic process, too, and... I just think it's time to really revisit what we see the role of schools being in society more broadly. And that it's not just about testing, right, and Mm -hmm. college readiness and preparation, but about how we develop the whole, you know, individual and someone who can pursue their own passions and interests and creativity, which seems to have been lost, I think, too, Mm -hmm. with the focus on high stakes accountability. And so bringing some of the joy and creativity and innovation back into education And at the same time, preparing people to be, again, active contributors to democracy, whether or not it's voting, being a part of the political process, even running for office. But I think we need a huge transformation in the whole democratic apparatus. And that requires preparing individuals to take on leadership roles, because I think we see a a huge crisis in that across the board.
0: What do you see as the the democratic apparatus when when you, you say that? What does that mean in Sonia's world?
1: I mean, I just feel like the political process is so disconnected anymore from the daily lives of people. And so it just makes it hard to, I think, encourage people to be a part of that process. Yet that process is the very thing that determines, you know, how our schools are funded, what they look like, Mm. the quality of education that students receive. And so I think for me, it's puzzling through how you energize and articulate a message that where people really see the value in being a part of that process because it will actually create positive outcomes in their daily life. And I think to me in this moment it's so much emphasis on the 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 kind of polarizing ideals and and factions that schools and conversations about what we want to see out of our schools could actually be a way hopefully. I think it can be a way to have a positive conversation about what we do want our young people to to have and to know and to have access to. So I guess I'm still very idealistic, maybe just optimistic that we can take the current moment and experience and think about how we can create something different. And as Dr. King says, you know, if we don't learn to live together, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but if we don't learn to live together in peace, you know, we're going to perish as fools. And so I think that's the choice that we have.
2: And something else that this conversation is making me think of, a tie that I draw between like how we started talking about high stakes testing and then also just some of the hope that we are still we still have of outcomes of like equality and civil rights in the U.S. is like so many of these solutions have been so individualistic, you know, the opportunity to do well for yourself on a test or like Critical race theorists might say that, like, the civil rights movement and post-Brown, there's the opportunity for individual people of color to succeed. But, like, these interventions aren't addressing, like, systemic or communal opportunities. So we have, like, this focus on the individual and individual achievement over community well-being, and so, when I think about what it means to engage democratically and what schooling for democracy is, it's learning to think as a community and community-mindedly. And we get so little of that in our our schools when they're they're really focused on this like individual achievement and attainment.
0: Something that you talk about, which is a great segue in the chapter, is equity for whom? Who's the who driving our our interests? And and to your point, is it is it the individual? Is it for the collective well-being? And even goes back to Sonia's point, like, what is the purpose of all of this in this system? So, Anna, I I guess from your perspective as a follow-up, how do we make that shift from individual to to collective? And do you think people want to go down that path, I should say?
2: Well, the work that we're trying to do at Burke and in our chapter is, like, just bringing decision-making closer to people, asking people, like, what's your vision of racial equity explicitly? And I think that's the solution, and it's to go and, like, speak with people and, you know, make sure that when you're an education decision maker, you're balancing the ideas of, like, who an expert is. Like, is the expert the person with the fancy PhD from Columbia, or is the expert the person who's lived in the community for their lifetime? And I think the answer is, like, together we can think through these ideas more effectively than anyone individually and to center that lived experience that situated knowledge as like a really key component of decision making is the way to go and when you ask are people doing this are people willing to do it oh my gosh it takes so much longer and so that's like one of the the real challenges as we're like trying to shift to like more responsive and and community minded policy making is just The tension between what it takes to like go out and listen and meet people and be in community versus have a person write a beautiful policy. You know, there's there's tension there.
0: And to give examples of more community-driven policies, could you give examples, Sonia and and Anna, that the listeners should think about in terms of policy, not only as an as an outcome, but also a process, even? Because I think sometimes we have this idea of policy that you have this paper and, you know, it's this beautiful policy that Anna or people like to think it's beautiful. But they look at it like, oh, yeah, that's great. And now we can move on to the next thing. But you know, could you give us examples of, of kind of new new models that capture this this vision that you're both talking about?
1: I- Believe that a lot of really exciting and important work is happening. I mean, I think this is part of what we're hoping to capture in our study on organizing for racial equity in New York City. And so a lot of it, you know, to Anna's earlier point is just finding out what is going on from the perspectives of people who are doing that work. And I think that that is oftentimes a step that we might skip in education research. You know, it's we've identified the problems. We want to kind of go out and and determine how to fix it because we all care and feel the sense of urgency of, you know, ensuring that we are changing and expanding opportunities for kids. But at the same time, I think it's really a lot of it has just been using culturally sensitive approaches where we recognize our role as outsiders in community in cases where we might be peers. You know, we recognize that relationship and, and just want to have a dialogue to, to better understand what do we mean by equity to your question, you know, who's leading it and who is it for And I think in order to really unpack and answer that question, we have to center power. And it's something that a lot of the equity discourses, I think, can avoid (laughs) Um, in many ways because equity, you know, we kind of get what it means, but I think depending on where we sit, it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. And so for those who are committed to justice and fairness, you know, equity is a no-brainer. It's making sure that people get what they need. From others who feel like equity is, giving people what they need and maybe giving some people more than they than they get, <laughs> mm. it can be viewed as anti, well, we've heard it's described as anti-white, anti-American, and you name it, right? Mm. And so I think part of that is a direct representation of how race and the competing views and values that are often inherent in how we think about our racial identity in relation to others mm. is a really difficult thing to address because we're kind of locked into these competing views as opposed to, I think, opening it up in a way where maybe we focus more on culture, mm-hmm. for example, to better understand our values, where we're coming from and, and how we define community. Mm-hmm. Um, again, to go back to Anna's point, so what does community mean and what does it look like and for whom and who gets to decide? So I think there's just a lot of space to have these questions, or not even questions, but have conversations and dialogue um, to better understand what do we mean by equity? What do we mean by community? And what do we even mean by education? Is it about being successful and and making a good salary? Or is it about being someone who can give back to their community and make it better than they found it?
0: Hmm. What are you learning from organizers in New York City that you'd be willing to share that's helping you think about what we need today, not only in schools, but in our society?
1: Well, we're just getting started.
0: Okay. Oh, that's fine. But
1: I can tell you but I can tell you we had an amazing interview that for me, and again, I, I anticipate we're gonna get so many different perspectives, but it was with an educator with a very lengthy career and experience and connectedness to the community that she advocates with. And I was telling Anna this after, you know, it makes me think about the variety of experiences based on one's own background, connection to community on behalf of who they're advocating for versus someone who may be, you know, advocating, but not necessarily from that community, or even had an extensive career as an educator. So i am just really, mm-hmm. we're kind of, I, I'm open and interested to just kind of hear all the ways that people think about education, organizing their advocacy work, whether or not it's, it's accomplishing what they, you know, hoped it would and how we can take that information to hopefully accelerate, you know, the work that we're doing around equity and opportunity and, just learning more about the process and the Mm -hmm. theories of action and change that people are using in the education organizing space.
2: Yeah. Yeah. My biggest takeaway from that conversation was I heard so much about the effort to get information and knowledge into the hands of parents, the hands Mm -hmm. and minds, and creating opportunities for, for parents and community members to share knowledge, like snowball it. It all just comes back to like localizing knowledge, like what we've learned so far, and I'm so excited to continue these conversations with this study because we're we're going to try to talk to as many different folks uh, who are out there and say that they're organizing for racial equity as we can to hear just this variety of theories of change and, and approaches to see what what people are up to and the like the processes that different folks think that will will get us to a more just future.
0: So let's say that the Anna of 2022 goes back to King William County, Virginia, and you're going back to your school and they say, you're elected, elected in office. How do you think about the system in which you grew up, knowing what you know now? What would you want to change most going back? Because you've, you've grown a lot. You've had teaching experience. There's a world outside of Virginia, but go, going back to that to that phase of your life.
2: Oh gosh, that's a hard question. Yeah i I haven't been back in King William County schools in a very long time, but I remember my experience. Like I had access to such rich pockets, and you know, I I was able to get. Even though my school didn't offer much, I was able to get access to these like correspondence courses, and I rode the school bus four hours a day to go to a specialized half-day program mm. um, for environmental science that only ten of us in my class got to do, and it was like a huge bus ride and commitment. But like looking back, King William, like they they provided a lot of opportunities, but they were really really segregated and required like a lot of. Time commitment, And like, I don't think I would have been able to get nearly the education I could have had my father not um, been early retired, like on early retirement with a disability. So I had uh, an advocate and a ride to school to catch the bus at 630 every day and somebody to pick me up at 6pm every day because I had a stay at home parent. So I think back on my opportunities, um, which like while they were weird and challenging, like they were abundant. But they were just so inaccessible to most people. Like I was so privileged. So I think that is one of the biggest things, like access and the widespread availability of like specialized and exciting knowledge um, is something that I would absolutely change first.
0: That's a great preview for future episodes, Anna. Thank you for sharing that that example. And Sonya, I'm gonna ask the same same of you. So Clark County Schools. Um, knowing what you know now, and I know you still have family in Clark County, if some, somebody said, Sonia, what do we need? What would you say to them? What, what needs to change Today? about the system? Yep. Oh, they've heard. Yep.
1: Um <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I don't think it's, you know, I think it's common across the country, but for Clark County, we're talking about a district that was like the fastest growing district for like a decade, you know, before the recession Mm -hmm. hit, maybe decades. And so the focus was just building buildings. I mean, they'll tell you that, you know, the school board was just trying to find space to build buildings, to have enough seats to accommodate students. And so I think now that there's, it's it's growing again, but with the downtime, you know, you really have to invest in the development of educators, you know? There's nothing like making sure that you are investing in the professional learning of your teachers, of leaders, that they have access to the best information, research, knowledge, strategies, and that they also have the space to to develop professional learning communities and support one another. And so that's one of the areas when I, when I am back home, I hear educators talk about all the time. It's not for lack of passion for many of them, um, but just wanting to have access to those resources and to the things that they need to be able to be um, the most effective, you know, educators that they can be. So, and again, you know, uh, we're at teacher's college where we really, again, value the importance of education and that that's lifelong and that all of us continue to learn and grow. Even me trying to really understand my children, (laughs) right. (laughs) And even, you know, they're only a couple of years apart, but just the huge shifts even Mm. between each one in terms of how the world has changed and looked for each of them and how different it is from, from my own experience, I think, you know, always gives me pause and makes me step back and think, are we spending enough time to develop educators for, you know, the young people who are sitting in classrooms today? Because, you know, you can kind of see a lot of that generational, I think, um, divide and some maybe miscommunication and understanding and that that's essential. Like we're not really going to be able to reach them if, you know, we don't, kind of take the time to understand, you know, who they are and, and how they see the world. And it's, it's very different, um, I can say, at least from how I see the world. And so it's humbling um, at the same time. But I think, again, essential, if we're really wanting to build something that's sustainable for the future, that we have to incorporate kind of this ongoing reflection and learning and, and commitment to developing the people who we put in front of our kids.
0: What's the one thing you want listeners to take away from, from today? Let's go to Sonia and then Anna.
1: I would say that equity is really about engaging in a project that is in many ways concrete and focuses on how you transform curriculum and teaching and learning opportunities in educational environments. And so what I've learned from Burke's work, for example, in the development of a PK-12 Black Studies curriculum in New York City, Burke is the Black Education Research Center. We're now a center um, at Teachers Mm -hmm. College. And that project has just taught me that you just have to really roll up your sleeves, you know, and it's when you dig into the work and the kind of tasks and activities that are associated with, in this case, transforming a curriculum to include the perspectives and the knowledge systems and histories of um, African descended peoples, it requires you to take a step back and ask yourself a lot of questions (laughs) around yourself the purpose of education, the systems that we're working in, how to engage community, what do the teachers and leaders need to know, right? And so it inherently requires us to engage all of these questions and issues that I think are essential to educational transformation. And so I guess for me, rather than talking about our visions of equity and what's wrong and what we want to see, Mm -hmm. what I've learned from this is that if you just kind of, determine <laughs> or engage in a project of this magnitude, you are going to be forced to work through those issues and have those difficult conversations and make those decisions and raise new questions. And that to me, that's, it's been a, a very generative process and learning pro- a difficult one, but one that I've learned a lot from and about. And I just think it's promising in terms of bringing together multiple stakeholders to, to problem solve and, and to create something um, new that hasn't existed before. I mean, it just, it takes a lot of, again, time, energy, commitment, and multiple perspectives. And so I think, again, it's a promising way to approach um, educational transformation.
0: Thank you, Sonia. Anna?
2: Yeah, I think one of my biggest takeaways from doing this work uh, and thinking about this concept is for a long time, Folks talked about equity and even I did like thought about equity as like something that we were doing equity work if we were like measuring inequality or looking for these inequities and discovering them in order to address them. And that's, that's part of it. Like you can't fix what you don't know, but more so than just identifying these like so-called so often called achievement gaps or, or inequalities, having the opportunity to sit down with young people and community members to see like and understand local visions of like what it would mean to have equitable schools is the first step not not measuring something and so my biggest takeaway that i would love folks to walk away with is like knowing that these two processes both have to happen and there's just so much more than understanding the landscape. It's, it's like Dr. Douglas was saying, rolling up your sleeves and, and digging into some enriching and future building work at the same time.
0: Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Douglas. Anna Kushner, Teachers College, Columbia University, for being on today to have this conversation. We could definitely keep going, but we're going to have to stop and actually have given a great preview for other topics for the book and other conversations you're listening to. Our children can't wait. It's such a huge takeaway. Sonia and Anna are reminding us that there is great power in stopping to reflect, in talking to people, asking questions before we jump in. So join us on this journey. Every week, we're bringing you more stories that ask important questions and see solutions. This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools, in the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support is provided by the Stewart Foundation... ...and the National Education Association. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is the creative director and senior producer. It is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book of the same name... ...Our Children Can't Wait. Available now from Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Windhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic.